The title of this morning's sermon is Principles for Giving Part 3. This is our third and our final sermon on this topic. <clears throat> As we talked about in the previous two sermons, the New Testament does not command giving a tithe or 10% or any specific amount, which begs the question then, how do we know how much to give? Well, even though the New Testament doesn't give us a, an amount or a percent, it gives us principles to help us make that determination. And we have been looking at those principles. I've left the principles from the previous sermons in your bulletin. And so if you look there for lesson one, those are the principles from the previous two sermons that we can apply to uh, determine how much, apply to our Christian lives to determine how much to give. Most of these principles are in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We've been looking at some select verses in these two chapters because really they provide the richest, most detailed discussion of New Testament giving. And I want to briefly remind you of the context for these verses. Paul wanted the Corinthians to give to the very poor Christians who were in Jerusalem. And so he motivates them to do so. He doesn't want to motivate them to do so by command. And so he motivates them by the example. One of the ways he motivates them is by the example of the Macedonians because they were such a great example, their generosity, and because they served as an example for the Corinthians and are in this letter, by extension, they also serve the Macedonians do as a wonderful example for us. So we have been looking at the example of the Macedonians to determine how much to give in our lives. Take a look at verse 1. We're going to briefly review. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So as we talked about, the Macedonians were experiencing, it says, a severe test of affliction. They're also in extreme poverty, but they were still able to find a way to produce, it says, a wealth of generosity on their part. And one of the other aspects of this that's very convincing is it says that they were able to do this with an abundance of joy. Verse 3, Paul says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. The words beyond their means mean that they gave more than they could afford because they were so poor, they didn't have much money, but they gave anyway, even beyond their means. For this morning, in verse 3, I want you to notice the words of their own accord. And this brings us to the last principle for New Testament giving. The New Te- Lesson 1, the New Testament commands giving, part 7, willingly. The New Testament commands giving part seven willingly. And if you want to see how willingly the Macedonians gave, look at verse four. It says, they were begging, imagine this, they were begging us earnestly for the favor or for the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. So imagine that. How many times have you heard Christians begging to be able to give? But that's what the Macedonians were doing. They called being able to give a favor, or some of your Bibles might say privilege. This is the the Greek word for favor. It's the word charis, where it's typically translated as grace. Elsewhere in Scripture, related to our word charity. And if you look back at verse 1, this is interesting. In verse 1, it says the grace of God that allowed them to give. So in verse 1, the grace of God allowed them to give, and now it's as though they're asking for more grace or they're asking for more favor to be able to give more. The Greek word for taking part, that's the word koinonia, which we know is commonly translated as what? Fellowship. 
The word means strong association or community or participation. And so the Macedonians wanted to take part or they wanted such strong koinonia or fellowship with the Jerusalem believers. They wanted to participate in their, in their suffering with them. They wanted to associate with them. They wanted this strong community with them and they accomplished that through their giving. And whenever we give, what we're doing is a form of koinonia or fellowship with people. We are associating with them. We are becoming, uh, entering into community with them. There, if someone is going through some struggle or burden, one of the ways to become close to them is through giving financially. That's what the Macedonians were doing to enter into the suffering of the poor uh, believers in Jerusalem by giving of themselves. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. He says, In this, not as we expected... But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. When Paul says, not as we expected, since he's the one speaking in the first person, he means that the Macedonians gave even more than Paul and his companions expected him to give. He was pleasantly surprised by how generous they were. The word first, notice that there, it says they first gave themselves to the Lord and then by the will of God to us and then gave to Paul and his companions to give to these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The word first, it's not referring to time or it's not referring to chronology. This is important. It's referring to priority. The point is they gave themselves first to God and then that led to their generosity. And in other words, their giving was related to their relationship with the Lord. And this brings us to lesson two. Giving reflects our relationships with the Lord. Giving reflects our relationships with the Lord. What we give, how much we give, how giving or how generous we are says a lot about our relationships with Christ. That's the main, that's the point that Paul's making in this verse that they gave themselves to the Lord and it was their relationship with the Lord that then allowed them to give to uh, the Jerusalem believers. And I want you to consider this. Jesus talked more about money than he talked about anything except for the kingdom of God. He actually talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. There are 39 parables. 11 of them are about money, not just about stewardship, but about money, which is almost one-third. In the Gospels, one out of 10 verses, or 288 verses total, are about money. And the reason I mention this is since Jesus talked so much about money, what that tells us is what we do with money says much about our relationships with Jesus. Since he talks so much about money, what we do with money says much about how we view Jesus. And this account with the Macedonians is a good example. Paul's point is they gave themselves first to the Lord, and it was their giving themselves to the Lord or their relationship with him that allowed them to be so generous. Paul's saying that their giving was an outpouring of their relationships with the Lord, or they gave the way they did simply because of their relationships with the Lord. And similarly, our giving or our generosity or you could even say our stinginess, is a reflection of our relationships with the Lord, or it is an outpouring of our relationship with the Lord, or a manifestation of it. Or Here's even a simpler way to say it. We give the way we do because of our relationships with Christ. We give the way we do because of our relationships with Christ. And we know this from previous sermons because Christ himself said, Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so his point is what we do with money maybe more than almost anything else, is a window 
into our relationships with Christ, or it's a window into our hearts. It reveals what we value. You've probably heard it said before that if you want to know what people value, what are the two things to look at? You look at their calendar, because then you get to see what they do with their time, and you look at their checkbook. And by seeing those two things, you're seeing what people value the most. Go ahead and skip to verse 7. Paul says, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. When he says this act of grace, he's referring to giving. So Paul's saying you excel in all these other areas, I want you to excel in giving or excel in generosity too. And look at the beginning of the next verse. I say this not as a command. And go ahead and pause right here. When he says, I say this not as a command, what is this? What he just said in verse 7, right? That they should excel in the area of giving. And this is interesting because Paul was an apostle. Nobody in the church had as much or more authority than he did. He could have drawn on his apostolic authority to command the Corinthian believers to give. And what's even more interesting is as you're moving through these verses, you can tell that the main point of them, the main point of chapters 8 and 9, is Paul's desire to see the Corinthians give. And right up to where it looks like, or you would expect him to command them to give, he backs away from that line. He gets right up to that point, and then he almost does an about-face and says, but I'm not commanding you. I am not telling you to give as a command. And why is that? Because this is the New Testament. This is the church age. We are not under the Old Covenant. We are not under the Mosaic Law. We are not commanded to give a certain amount. And this is a great example of that. Paul's saying, I don't want you giving because I commanded you to do so. I could exert, it's almost like in the book of Philemon, when Paul wants to see Onesimus reconciled, he says, you know, I could command you to do this. I could command you to forgive, but I'm appealing to you in love. It's very similar to that. Paul says, I could command you to give this amount, but instead, I want you to give willingly. He says he's testing the Corinthians' love, whether it's genuine. That word prove in the verse, if your Bible says prove, or it might say test, he's saying your love is being tested at this moment, whether your love is sincere or genuine. And it's very fitting because if you remember a couple weeks ago when we considered the manna that Israel received in the wilderness, the manna served as a test for the Israelites, right? Remember that? Well, Paul drew on that in this chapter to say that Money, similarly, is a test for us. It is a test of our love, a test of the sincerity of it, our love for brothers and sisters in Christ, our love for the Lord, Lord himself. Skip to chapter 9 and look at verse 5. Skip to chapter 9 and look at verse 5. <clears throat> Paul says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready, notice this, he wants the gift ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. That word, Greek word for exaction means you'd like squeeze it or force it out of someone. So here's, here's what's happening, because I know we just jumped into the, 
middle of this chapter. The Corinthians of some time in the past had promised to give an amount or a gift to the Jerusalem believers. But it's a lot easier to talk about giving than to give, isn't it? And so the Corinthians had done the talking, but they hadn't done the doing yet. And so Paul says, you promised this amount. And so what I did was I urged brothers, I sent these brothers on ahead to arrange in advance for the gift that you promised. I mean, it's almost like Paul's letting them know, hey, I sent people to get the gift that you said you would give, reminding them of what they said. But then he even makes the point to say, I want this gift ready, but I want it given willingly. I don't want it as an exaction. I don't want to have to be forced out of your hands. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We've considered a couple parts of this verse up to this point. The part of this verse that we have not considered yet are the words, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And I want to consider both aspects of that. Paul says, not reluctantly. And that refers to our attitude when giving. We shouldn't give reluctantly. When he says not under compulsion, that refers to the conditions when giving. We should not feel compelled or feel forced to give. And I want to briefly talk about these in more detail. The word for reluctantly, it means with grief or with sorrow or with sadness. So when people give reluctantly, picture people kind of giving through clenched teeth. You can almost tell that it pains them. The, the gift almost have to be, has to be you know, pried out of their hands. And have you ever had someone give something to you, and even if they were trying to appear to give willingly, you could tell that they were giving it unwillingly? You could almost read it on their face. You could tell that it was hurting them. The, the, their behavior, their nonverbal language communicated, I don't want to give this to you. I'm giving this to you because I have to, because it's your birthday or your anniversary or your graduation or because I feel like I owe you. Or if you're a child, maybe you're saying because my parents told me to. Well, if you've ever gotten a gift like that where you could tell that the person really didn't want to give it to you, my suspicion is it didn't mean very much to you, right? And what's my point in saying that? It is the same with God. It is the same with our Father. It's probably worse for Him because He can see our hearts. And He knows how unwilling we really are. No matter what's being communicated outwardly, He can see what's going on inwardly. And He doesn't want gifts given that way. The words under compulsion, it refers to external pressure or refers to coercion. We're not supposed to give based on the demands of others. We're not supposed to give because someone has manipulated us or commanded us to do so or has been legalistic and said, you have to do this. When giving is done that way, it, reveal, it's, it looks more like taxation than worship, which actually we haven't talked a whole lot about what tithes were in the Old Testament but if you were to, one, one reason I'm, um, you can tell, I mean, I'll just be candid with you. You can tell I'm not thrilled with the idea of giving a tithe in the church. And part of the reason is if you wanted to associate the tithe with something, you would associate it with tax, taxes. 
If you want to think about what a, a, tack, a tithe is, it's more like a tax than anything else because it was something that people had to give or they were forced to give. So I don't like the idea that people in the church are told to give a tithe because you don't give the church taxes. We're not looking for your taxes. We're looking for your worship, and giving money is one way to worship the Lord. The word's not under compulsion. Now, to me, and you can tell me if you disagree, I think that they are very clear. It says that New Testament believers or church-age believers are not supposed to give under compulsion. They're not supposed to be compelled. This is why it's so disappointing to see how frequently this phrase is disobeyed because I don't think that if you want to be honest with the text that you can really mess it up. It's very plain. And when I, we talk about not giving under compulsion, we almost, our minds almost go to certain people. It could be tele-evangelists. It could be some church leaders that you picture standing before their congregations, just manipulating people, twisting them into giving more, guilting them, shaming them, sometimes lying to them, whether deliberately or accidentally, making them promises. If you were to do this, then God will do this. And all of that is shameful. That's something that they should be, feel guilty about doing. Because the New Testament says so clearly, don't give under compulsion. Don't try to squeeze any money out of people. You can tell that when people do this, they don't have people's best interests in mind. They're not trying to get people to grow in their relationships with the Lord. Instead, they're typically motivated by what? Greed, covetousness. If we want to apply the best motivation to them, perhaps fear. I might seem a little insensitive to some church leaders. Perhaps I would be more sensitive to them if I was in a church and I thought our church was falling apart financially. Then perhaps I I might seem a little more compassionate to the pastor that stands before his church and guilts his congregation. That way I don't think there's anything with pastors or church leaders being transparent with their congregations about the finances. But even in sharing that transparently, they should not turn around and guilt or shame people into giving. Warren Wiersbe said this. He, uh, he passed away. Warren Wiersbe has been a blessing to me. His commentaries have. I'm thankful for his years of his decades of ministry, faithful study and preaching of God's word. A man who came to the end of his race, and I don't know of any criticisms of him. I don't know of any accusations people can bring against him. And as he reflected on his ministry, listen to what he said. During my years of ministry, I have endured many offering appeals. I have listened to pathetic tales about unbelievable needs. I have forced myself to laugh at old jokes that were supposed to make it easier for me to part with my money. I have been scolded, shamed, and almost threatened, and I must confess that none of these approaches has ever stirred me to give more than I plan to give." In fact, more than once I gave less because I was so disgusted with the worldly approach. (laughs) Mark Twain said, I was so sickened by the long appeal that I took a bill out of the plate. (laughs) I mean, and that's why we don't pass the plate here. We don't know anyone taking money out of it. (laughs) I was joking. We don't pass the plate because of what we're talking about, which you see right here in the verse. This is not something I brought to Woodland Christian Church. I, I was... Um, blessed 
for the ministry I had at Grace Baptist. That's where I entered into ministry. But they passed the plate. And there were, a couple, there were some Sundays, I think the, on communion Sunday, there, the plate was passed. Um, a second time at the end of service, the plate could be passed during Sunday school. There could be Sundays where the plate was passed three times. People were asked to give. And you, you go so far in terms of thoughts you share if you're not the, if you're not the senior pastor. And, and they didn't want to change those things, and that was fine. It was still a wonderful church. It was just one thing that I would have done differently if I was there and it was up to me. Again, I still think it's a, a godly, God-honoring, you know, biblically-ordered church. However, I was very thankful coming to Woodland Christian Church that there's an offering box in the foyer. We don't, I would like to think that none of you feel like we push you to give. And I share this because I just want a moment to give glory to the Lord. I want to give glory to God to how he has provided for us here financially. It is a, it is a manifestation of his grace that we have not pushed giving here. I hope you've never felt compelled to give, yet God has always provided for us. I've, I can sincerely say that in the years that I've been here, there's not one board meeting, which is where we generally talk about the finances or the annual meeting where we determine the budget, where we've ever had to say things look tight financially or it looks like we're hurting financially. I think that's a credit to the Lord, and I think it's a credit to your, your generosity. I appreciate being able to pastor a congregation where we don't have to push you to give, but you've all given in such a way that the Lord has been able to take care of us the way that he has. Now, after listening to all this, you could ask, well, if that's the case, then why did God command giving in the Old Testament? Why did he command a tithe in the Old Testament? Well, we already kind of talked about the answer. The tithe was more of a tax than anything. The tithe was, please understand when I said it, it was more of a tax than anything. They were expected to give beyond just that 10%. On top of that, they're expected to give more, and this brings us to lesson three. In the Old Testament, part one, God also desired giving willingly. In the Old Testament, part one, God also desired giving willingly. And if you think about it, if, if we're going to talk about giving, as a pastor, I would not want I don't think, I mean, I haven't been in this situation as I just shared, but I don't think as a pastor I would want people giving because they felt very guilty or because they felt like the church was going to fall apart without their generosity. We want people to give for the reasons that I mentioned earlier that I said it's a reflection of your relationship with Christ, that it says something about your relationship with the Lord and it is a way to worship him. Go ahead and turn to Exodus 25 too. We won't turn back to 2 Corinthians 8. God also desired giving willingly in the Old Testament. I'd like you to see that, not just the New Testament. I'm going to read a lot of verses. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly so that you can catch the theme. We don't need to um, break them down and exposit them individually. You'll get the idea, but it takes quite a few verses for me to read through, so I'm going to try to do that fairly quickly. Exodus 25 too. Here's the context for the first verse. God wanted the people to build the tabernacle. There's going to have to be a considerable amount of generosity on the people's part for the construction of the tabernacle. Where we are in Exodus 25, the Mosaic Law or the Old Covenant was instituted in Exodus 24. You don't have to look there, but the previous chapter. So what that means is when we read Exodus 25, they are under the Old Covenant or they are under the Mosaic Law. 
Look at verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. No mention of a tithe. No mention of take enough tithes from the people until we have the money we need to build the tabernacle. Even though the law had been instituted, God still wanted them giving willingly. Skip to chapter 30, Exodus 35, verse 4. <clears throat> Exodus 35, verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. And what you'd expect is the Lord has commanded a tithe because that had been commanded. But instead, verse 5, take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. In Exodus 25, 2, whoever's heart moves him. In this verse, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. What did God appeal to? To their generosity, which is to say he wanted them giving willingly. A few verses later, look at verse 21. This is what happened, pretty beautiful. They came... Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him versus everyone who felt commanded to do so and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought all this wealth to the Lord. Now verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them. Now verse 29, all the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it, and then notice how they brought it. They brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And so all these phrases, heart stirred him, spirit moved him, willing heart, free will offering. In the Old Testament, under the Mosaic law, all emphasizing the people being moved to give willingly of their own volition, independent of the law. So even under the law, this is still how God wanted giving to take place. And what you notice is really an emphasis on the people being given to, being moved to give from the heart, being stirred up within them out of thankfulness, out of generosity versus being stirred up by the priests, or by Moses, or by the law, or really by any external source. Turn two books to the right to Deuteronomy 15, verse 10. Deuteronomy 15, verse 10. This is how they were to give to the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 10. You shall give to the poor, he says, freely. You shall give to the poor freely, willingly. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you. If you give freely, willingly, not begrudgingly, the Lord will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Which, this is what it 
communicates to me that if they were to give, even if they were to give a large amount, but they did it reluctantly or begrudgingly, then God's not going to bless them. So they could give a certain amount, but if they have the wrong heart, a wrong attitude, it sounds like God's not going to bless them. And this is practically the language of 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that God wants us giving freely, willingly, joyfully, not begrudgingly. Look one chapter to the right, Deuteronomy 16, 10. Deuteronomy 16, 10. Keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering, not a tithe, not multiple tithes, but a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. Again, the emphasis on giving willingly. Listen to this verse, this proverb from Solomon describing the giving that does result in blessing. Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely or willingly, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds, or to use New Testament language of 2 Corinthians 9, 7, is reluctant regarding what he should give, and he only suffers want. So you've got, in the Old Testament, giving willingly elevated while stinginess is being condemned or warned against. What I want to do now is I want to give you an example, a couple of examples, of giving one of giving unwillingly and one of giving willingly so that we can learn from them, apply them to our lives. Hopefully these examples, because they're containing God's word, could work in our hearts. The word can work in our hearts. Turn to Genesis 28, 20. <clears throat> Genesis 28, 20. I'll give you the context for these verses before we read them. In the previous chapter, Jacob tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright, and their mother, Rebekah, comes to Jacob and lets him know that his brother Esau wants to murder him, and so he must flee. He's got to leave his family behind. He doesn't know when or if he's going to see them again. He's on his way to live where or with whom? His uncle Laban, the only person that can kind of match his manipulative, match Jacob's own manipulativeness, manipulative, manip, Jacob was manipulative, and this guy could match it. (laughs) So the whole point is, this is a low point in Jacob's life. Very, very low point in Jacob's life. And at this point, God graciously comes to him during the night in a dream and makes Jacob many wonderful promises. And look what happens, interestingly, when Jacob wakes up from the dream. Verse 20, Genesis 28, 20. Jacob makes this vow, and he says... If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and if he'll give me bread to eat, and if he'll give me clothing to wear, verse 21, so that I come again, so if I can, if he does this, that I can come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, notice this, I will give a full tenth to you. Not even... A partial tenth, but a full tenth. I kind of picture God hearing this prayer saying, whoa, Jacob, that's tremendous. I can't believe you're going to do all this for me. So the thing is, Jacob's, Jacob believes in God, but he's not a believer yet. You can have faith that God exists or have demonic faith like James 2 describes, the, the faith that demons have, believe there is a God, but are kind of like the devotional today. He's not your God yet. And so Jacob, for Jacob, this is important, God was still the God of Abraham and Isaac. 
He believed there was a God. He just met with him. But God had not become his God yet. Jacob is not uh, saved yet. That's not going to happen until later. Think about when God wrestles with him. And then God becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But right now, he's just the God of Abraham and Isaac. And you can even tell that just by the way he's talking. You know, if God does these things for me, then he'll be my God, implying that God isn't what? His God yet. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. In the Old Testament, Jacob demonstrates giving unwillingly. Jacob demonstrates giving unwillingly. So since he's, to say he's not a believer yet is to say that he's not Israel yet. He's not God prevails yet. He's still Jacob, which is to say he's still what? Heel grabber or manipulator, right? Jacob manipulates everyone and everything in his life, including trying to manipulate God himself. You see how he's bargaining here with God in this prayer. He says, if God will be with me, keep me, give me food, give me clothing, bring me home safely, then he'll be my God, which implies that if God won't do these things, then God will not be his God. But we don't make God our God. God is God whether he's your God or not. God doesn't stop being God just because you haven't made him your God. You have some other God in your life, some idol or lowercase g God. God is still God. But we don't make God our God because of what he will do for us. We don't haggle with him. We don't bargain with him. We make God our God because he is God, and our knee will bow to him, if not in this life, then in the next life. And we make him our God because of what he has already done for us, given us life and breath and all things. We don't sit back and say, well, you know, God, if you'll do this and this and this for me and this, then you can be my God. But that's what Jacob's doing. It's very conditional. You can tell Jacob is giving very unwillingly. He says, I'll give you a tenth. I mean, just think of that. Who talks to God like that? (laughs) I'll give you a tenth, God. How does this sound, Lord? Let's, Let's talk about this together. I'll do this for you if you will do this for me, and I'll even give you one-tenth of all that I have. And the reason this is important, the reason I'm talking about this is this demonstrates how we can be tempted to give. I think if we're all honest, we're all very tempted to say, God, I will give you this if you will then fill in the blank. Do this for me or give this to me. We can apply that to many areas of our lives. I will serve in this way, or I will be this person you want if you do this for me. If we apply it to giving, we'll typically say, I will give if you'll give me this raise, or this boat, or this car, or this house, or this bonus, then I'll give you this amount. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're being like Jacob. We're bargaining with God, Our our giving is very conditional. It's a form of giving unwillingly. And when giving is done unwillingly, I just want you to think about what God can and can't bless. Let me say one more time. When giving is done unwillingly, think about what God can and can't bless. He can bless the money that's given. And what I mean by that is even if someone gives very unwillingly with the ugliest heart, God can still do what he wants with that money. He, he can take an amount of money from the, that's given with the coldest, ugliest heart, 
and still accomplish his purposes with it and use it for his good. But what can't God bless? The giver. When people give with ugly, cold, stingy hearts, what can God do with that? He can, he can do good with the money that's given, but he can't do much with that kind of a heart. And so when giving is done unwillingly, he can bless the amount, he can bless the gift, but he can't bless the giver. And that's, that's kind of my concern for all of you and for me, that when we give unwillingly, I, I am concerned about what God is prevented from doing in our lives. I just think there's so much more that God can do for people who give willingly out of hearts of worship. There's so much more God can do in our lives and hearts when our hearts give out of thankfulness, when we're generous and we give joyfully. We give, as we've been talking about these last few weeks, sacrificially, cheerfully, because we're so thankful for what the Lord has done for us. And I just cannot imagine another reason that I would want to encourage you to give. I sure don't want to shame you. I sure don't want to guilt you. I'd even say, if, you're, if you don't want to give, don't give. If God wants this church taken care of, which I believe he does, he doesn't need your money. I'm not going to ask you for it if your heart's wrong. God can provide for us and give us what we need for the church to, to go forward. So I would just say, if your heart is wrong, or even ugly or sinful regarding giving, then repent. And pray that God changes your heart and moves you to want to give willingly. I want to show you another example. Turn to the left to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 18. The context for this account, because we're jumping into it, is Abraham's nephew Lot that he should not have taken with him because Abraham was supposed to leave his family behind, ended up getting captured when the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown. Word reaches Abraham that his nephew Lot has been captured, and then Abraham gets his standing army, and he goes, and he delivers Lot, and in the process, he has to conquer four kings, and when he does, he comes, Abraham comes into a considerable amount of plunder from this battle when he rescues Lot, and when he returns from the battle, he meets one of the most unique individuals in the Old Testament, a man named Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he brings out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And then in verse 19, notice this. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Melchizedek said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then notice this. Abram, his name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet, gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. everything. And this brings us to the last part of lesson three. In the Old Testament, Abraham demonstrates giving willingly. Abraham demonstrates giving willingly. In a recent sermon, although I think I've mentioned it other times as well, we've discussed the principle of first giving. And the idea is, if you look at the first time a word is used in Scripture, you'll often get the truest meaning of that word. And sometimes people do it in certain books of the Bible or even the first time a word is used in the Old Testament versus the first time that a word is used in the New Testament. And this right here is the first time that the word tithe is used. And your Bible says tenth, but it's still the Hebrew word for tithe. And so here's the question. 
why would this account reveal the truest meaning of the word tithe? Why would this account reveal the truest meaning of the word tithe? Huh? Because he gave a tithe of everything? Okay. What? He's willing. So let's, let me ask another question. When I say give a tithe, what book comes to mind? Don't say Genesis. Because where is it commanded to give a tithe? If I say where, is, where does it, where, when it says to give a tithe, what book comes to mind? Leviticus, right? Not Genesis. But that's exactly why this is the truest meaning of the word. Because when you're looking at giving a tithe in Leviticus, you're looking at giving a tithe because it's commanded. When you look at giving a tithe in Genesis, you're looking at giving independent or apart from the law or separate from it being commanded. In other words, let me say it like this. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe 500 years before the law commanded giving a tithe, which is the truest form of giving God wants because it's giving that is done willingly versus being done under compulsion. Or another way to say it is Abraham gave as he decided in his heart. The language of 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He gave as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. He couldn't have been compelled to give because there was no law commanding him to give. So right here, when Abraham gives this tithe to Melchizedek, he looks like a New Testament believer in the Old Testament because he's giving separate or independent or apart from the law. And here's something to consider. Why did Abraham give Melchizedek this tithe? It says because Melchizedek blessed him. Do you see that? Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then it follows right after that, because of that blessing, Abraham gives Melchizedek this tithe. And what I was thinking is this. Melchizedek is a king, and he's a priest, and so because of his character, because of what Melchizedek had done for Abraham in blessing him, Abraham responded this way. Melchizedek's a king and priest. Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is great high priest. Whatever Melchizedek did for Abraham pales in comparison to what Jesus has done for us. However much Melchizedek blessed Abraham pales in comparison to how much Jesus has blessed us. And so if Abraham would want to give to this man, and I'm not even minimizing what Melchizedek was or did, how much more willingly should we want to give to the king of kings, to the great high priest, because of how much more he has blessed us? And this brings us to lesson four. Thankfulness produces better giving than law. Thankfulness produces better giving than law.
I'm going to read two interesting accounts. You don't have to turn there. That reveal how much better willing giving is than law giving. Let me say it one more time. I'm going to read two accounts that reveal how much better willing giving is than law giving, but in the Old Testament under the law, so that you can see even under the law how much better giving willingly is. The context for the first account is Moses asked the people to give for the construction of the tabernacle. And listen to what happened. Exodus 36, 3. The builders of the temple, the people who are going to construct it, they received from Moses all of the contribution or all the wealth that the people had given. It had been brought to them for doing the work on the sanctuary. But the people still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. The builders said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from giving. The people gave so much, they had to be told to stop. So there was a command regarding giving, but it was the command to stop. I mean, imagine that. Centuries later, an almost parallel situation took place with the construction, not of the sanctuary, but the greater sanctuary, the temple. David asked the people to give, as we kind of talked about in a recent sermon, for the construction of the temple and listen to what he said. First Chronicles 29.5. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Then the people offered willingly. Verse 9. Then the people rejoiced. So we've also got joyful giving. For they had offered willingly. Because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced. More joyfulness. Greatly. Therefore, David blessed the Lord and said, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. Again, this, is, this all echoes 2 Corinthians 9 7. God's character doesn't change, his heart doesn't change. This is the language of 2 Corinthians 9, 7 in the Old Testament. Give willingly, give joyfully, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. This is the account I mentioned a couple weeks ago where I'm serious. The people gave so much money, I had to go back and study it out and make sure that I was reading the numbers correctly. They gave hundreds of thousands of talents of gold and silver and material for the construction of the temple. Here's why I'm telling you this, and this is important. The law can't produce this. The law cannot do this. I read these two accounts, these beautiful accounts of giving, and they took place because they took place apart from the law. Only thankful hearts can produce this kind of giving because only thankful hearts are moved to give as an act of what? Worship. And this is another reason why it is so sad and sinful when televangelists or church leaders 
are trying to squeeze that last dollar out of people or are trying to get them to give out of obligation. If you want people to give, and hear me when I say this, preach Christ. If you want people to give, you preach Christ. Because then they give out of thankfulness. Then they give out of worship. You don't have to guilt them. You don't have to shake them. You just have to tell them what Jesus has has done for them. And then they want to give. And how much better does that feel? I can tell you as a pastor, that's a wonderful feeling. But I didn't guilt anyone or shame anyone. The people give because they're thankful for what Jesus has done for them. To state it plainly, our, our motivation to give should not come from obedience to a command. Our motivation should come from appreciation for Christ and what he's done for us. And anyone who truly understands what Jesus has done for them is going to be moved to give without any law, without any command, without being compelled And each week, this is how I've been trying to encourage you to give, by focusing on what Christ has given you. And so I want to conclude, not just this sermon, but really this brief series on giving, with this lesson. Lesson five, Jesus willingly gave more than a tithe. Lesson five, Jesus willingly gave more than a tithe. Jesus didn't give you a tithe, did he? He gave completely for us. Go ahead and turn to Leviticus 1. This will be the last place we turn this morning. Two books to the right. I just want to illustrate this. I was thinking, where can we look to see how much Jesus gave us, how completely he gave of himself? And the burnt offering is a tremendous example Burnt offerings are wonderful pictures of Christ. Every sacrifice, every offering in different ways looked forward to Jesus. Every single sacrifice or offering that was ever brought forth in the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus and his work in one way or another. One of my personal favorites is the burnt offering. The key verse, because we're not trying to look at all of it, is verse 4. Look at me at Leviticus 1.4. We're going to break it up into three parts. Each of these three parts reminds us of what Christ did for us. First, look at the words. He, this is the priest, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And when the priest laid his hand on the head of the burnt offering, what did that communicate? It communicated the transmission of sin to that animal. The sin wasn't truly transmitted, or else Jesus wouldn't have had to die but it was prefiguring or it was foreshadowing or it was looking forward, kind of in the language of Isaiah 53, 6, that the Lord has laid, why that language? Laid on Jesus what? The iniquity of us all. Him being pictured as that lamb, but instead of a priest's hand being placed on the head of the animal, you've got the father's hand being placed on his son as he lays our iniquity on him. Look at the words, second part of the verse. It shall be accepted for him. Him is the sinner. This is substitutionary atonement. It means it's going to be accepted on the sinner's behalf. This animal is going to die in the place of the sinner. Substitutionary atonement. 
the way that Jesus was going to die in our place, that he was going to die as our substitute. And then it says to make atonement for him, looking forward to Jesus making atonement for our sins. Now, three times in the verses, in verse 9, in verse 13, and in verse 17, it says, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this is why it's such a beautiful picture of Christ, because the burnt offering was completely consumed for the sin of the sinner, as Jesus was completely consumed, no percent left. Paul applied this imagery to Jesus. It's not my opinion that the burnt offering serves as a picture type of Christ. This is one of the beautiful types that we have New Testament confirmation looked forward to Jesus. In Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Looking back to these words in Leviticus 1, that the priest would offer all of it on the altar as a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord as the smoke went up. So burnt offerings completely consumed. Jesus is that true and greater burnt offering. We're talking about willingly giving, and Jesus willingly gave himself to be completely consumed for our sins. Or if it's the drink offering, completely poured out, nothing left, as he gave himself for us. And so it really it's Jesus, this radical act of self-denial, nothing like it in all of history. On our behalf, <clears throat> what Jesus did for us is the only thing, there is nothing else, there's nothing a pastor can say, there's nothing someone on television or the radio can say. It's only that radical act of self-giving that Jesus performed that can consistently move us to give as we have discussed in these sermons, sacrificially, joyfully, and willingly. Father, we thank you for your son's sacrifice. <clears throat> and I pray for this church. I can't concern myself with other congregations. These are the people you bless me with, and I pray for all of us, myself included, that we wouldn't feel obligated or compelled to give. We would feel privileged to give. We would be thankful to be able to give as an act of worship because of what your son has done for us. And I don't know what people might hear or see in the future if they turn on the radio or they turn on the television or they attend a conference where someone might compel them to give out of guilt or shame or something else. Our motivation, I pray that it would be Christ's work for us on the cross and that would stay at the forefront of our minds so that we could have hearts that give out of thankfulness. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.